Good morning. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3? Hebrews chapter 3. And just a reminder that uh, tonight we have a members' meeting. It'll be a wonderful time of uh, coming together, seeing people being baptized, affirming their faith, adding people to the body of Christ, and other important updates and actions for us as members. And even as we uh, look at uh, today's text, again, I want to remind you uh, that I love you, brothers and sisters, and I count it a great privilege and joy to be your pastor. And again, my task uh, is to proclaim the Word of God in all its truth. Uh, And so sometimes we need to be reminded that love speaks the truth. So I will speak God's Word with that in mind today. If you would pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, be gracious to me, a sinner. Be gracious to us. May we hear the voice of your Holy Spirit speaking to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I would never do that. This is a a phrase that you have probably spoken at some point or the other in your life. You know, some of the kids here maybe look at some things that mom and dad do, or maybe when you were a kid growing up at home, there were things that your family did, and you say, you know, when I grow up, when I have my own family, I'm never going to do that. Or maybe you're single, and you look at the marriage of certain married couples among your friends, and, uh, you know, you don't say it to them, but in your heart you say, oh, these people, I'm never going to do that. Or maybe you have been married, and you've seen other married couples that have children, maybe you have children of your own, and you looked at how others deal with their children, and you say, well, we would never do that. Kind of have the same uh, mindset sometimes when it comes to the Bible. We look at Peter, and we say, you know, you want to be like Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, bold, but then you look at Peter denying Jesus three times. I would never do that. Or we want to be like David, toppling Goliath, the giant. But you look at David and Bathsheba, oh, no, no, no. I would never do that. You see, the same phenomenon is going to take place when you read the Old Testament. Probably if you've been reading the Bible reading plan and following along, you might have finished the book of Numbers a couple of weeks ago. And in the book of Numbers, you see these people whom God redeemed from slavery in Egypt, brought them out of Egypt by miraculous signs and wonders, took them through the Red Sea, parted the sea, and brought them into the wilderness. And what do they do? They respond by grumbling against God, by disbelieving His promises, and by living in disobedience. And for us as a church, we might be tempted to look at that and say, no, we would never do that. Well, in today's passage, the author of Hebrews wants us to know that we are exactly in danger of doing just that. You see, there's so much in common that we share with Old Testament Israel in their wilderness wanderings. They had experienced a great redemption, a great deliverance. God brought them out of slavery in Egypt through his deliverer, Moses, brought them into the wilderness and was going to lead them to the promised land, we have experienced a redemption, a deliverance far greater than theirs. 
God has brought us out of slavery to Satan, sin, and death through the death and resurrection of his own son, a far greater deliverer than Moses, our Lord Jesus Christ. These people were on a journey in the wilderness, hoping to arrive at the land that God promised to them. We are, as a people, on a wilderness journey, in the wilderness of this world, as we await entry into what God has promised to us, our heavenly home in his heavenly kingdom. And then these people in the wilderness faced trials and afflictions that God used to test them, to reveal what was in their hearts. And we face many kinds of trials and afflictions by which God tests us in our journey in the wilderness of this world. Well, how did they respond? They responded poorly, to say the least. They grumbled. They disbelieved, they hardened their hearts and rebelled against the Lord, their God. And they faced the consequences of their disobedience. God's wrath came upon them. Well, the Christians to whom Hebrews was written, again, I might remind you that the book of Hebrews was a sermon preached by this concerned pastor to a congregation of Christians. And the author reminds them that they were in danger of hardening their hearts just like Israel did as they faced trial and affliction. And so are we. In today's passage, dear brothers and sisters, the author of Hebrews warns us that we too face these dangers of unbelief and a hardened heart. And we must be cautious to guard our hearts so that our hearts are not hardened, so that we do not fail and fall in the same way. As we look at the passage, uh, I want to show you the structure again, and you might not be surprised by this, but the structure of today's passage, once again, is a sandwich. And you're wondering, why do we have this sandwich over and over again? Well, sandwiches are good for you, all right? And uh, it helps us read the text. So let's uh, begin looking from verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So that's the top slice of bread. He's quoted Psalm 95. He'll return to it again and exposit it some more. But that's the top slice of bread. Now we enter the central section, the meat. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's the central section of the sandwich. Now we return to Psalm 95 again at the bottom slice. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? 
And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So we're going to see in today's text two warnings. Two warnings in this passage. Two warnings concerning our hearts. The first warning is, don't harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. And the second warning is, guard one another's hearts. So warning number one, don't harden your hearts. Verse 7, therefore as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He says it again in verse 15, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Then did you catch what he says in verse 7 there? As the Holy Spirit says, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And that raises a question. Does God still speak today? Is the Holy Spirit still active today? Does he still speak today? And if he does, how does he speak? How do we hear God's voice today? You know, some people have uh, unfortunately misunderstood uh, things, and I've heard claims at times where people have said, oh, at ECC, we don't be- they don't believe that the Holy Spirit is still active today in the church. Or things like, uh, at ECC, they don't believe the Holy Spirit altogether. And I want to clarify that misconception. No, we very much believe and affirm the Holy Spirit as being fully God. He is fully God He is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. And we very much believe that the Holy Spirit is active in the church today, in people's lives today. And we believe that God speaks today. The Holy Spirit speaks to God's people. He speaks to us. The question is, how does He speak? I want to say He speaks in and through the Word of God. Through the words that He has inspired And that he has given to us in writing, that he has laid down for us to hear his voice when the Bible is read, when the Bible is preached. When the word of God is rightly interpreted and applied in the preaching of God's word, the Holy Spirit speaks. You see, sometimes when we talk about hearing from God, uh, some people want to have and begin to feel that this is more desirable to have some sort of uh, direct speech or some sort of special experience in which you hear God speak to you and you hear His voice. And that kind of undermines the notion and and the, the truth that God is always speaking directly to us, supernaturally to us, perfectly in His revealed Word that He has given to us for our good. It is fully sufficient for our obedience. Scripture doesn't endorse exactly the kind of mindset that wants to hear from God directly apart from His Word. No, the Lord speaks to us directly, powerfully, and we hear His voice in His Word. So, so, you know, you might be longing for an experience of the Spirit and to hear the Spirit's voice, but notice what the author says. As the Holy Spirit says, verse 7, today if you hear His voice. Remember, the author was preaching. This was a preached sermon 
to a congregation of Christians and he's saying, today you're hearing the Holy Spirit's voice in the word of God. We hear God's voice in God's word. And as the sermon was preached to these Christians, the Holy Spirit was speaking through the words of Psalm 95 applied to their situation and he speaks the same way to us. He is speaking to you today in the scripture. And so if you hear his voice, here is his command. Do not harden your hearts. And even as the Holy Spirit tells us not to harden our hearts, he tells us not to be like the generation of Israel in the wilderness. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. It's very interesting here. We're seeing multiple layers of the interpretation and application of the word of God. The author of Hebrews is speaking to a Christian congregation and telling them from Psalm 95, do not be like this generation in the wilderness that hardened their hearts against the word of God. And if you go back to Psalm 95, there, this is written in David's time, and again it was the word of God to the people of God in the time of David, where the psalmist is saying, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts don't be like that generation in the wilderness in the book of Numbers. So the author of Hebrews is quoting the Psalms to his congregation. The author of Psalms is quoting the book of Numbers and applying it to the people of God at that time. And now I'm quoting the author of Hebrews and applying it to you. The word of God across multiple generations, the voice of God speaking through the scriptures to his people saying, do not harden your hearts. And if you go back to the book of Numbers which our sister Betsy read earlier today, you will see how these people hardened their hearts against God. They had come out of Egypt, they were on their way to the promised land, and the journey should have taken not more than two weeks. It was a two-week journey. And in two weeks, they were in this wilderness, they were going through this wilderness where they were tested with different kinds of afflictions, and the testing revealed their hearts. How did they respond? They responded by grumbling. By grumbling. God had delivered them from years of backbreaking slavery in Egypt. He had brought them out with signs and wonders. He parted the Red Sea. He was taking them to a land flowing with milk and honey. He was providing them with bread from heaven every day. Over a million people being fed every day with bread from heaven. He provided them with water to drink from a rock. He was dwelling in their midst in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Amazing things happening in their midst, but they didn't see it. They didn't think about it. Instead, they were grumbling and looking back at the good old days. Oh, that we would be back in Egypt. Oh, that we could just have the good meat and the barbecue we had back then. Oh, I'm longing for all of that grilled fish. And it was seasoned with garlic. And the onions that we had, and the cucumbers, oh, how we miss those good old days in Egypt. Constant discontent. A failure to see the amazing things God had worked and had been working in their midst. A constant rebellion against God's appointed leader. Oh, who's this Moses guy? 
He thinks that God only speaks through him. Well, doesn't he know that God speaks to us also? And we could do better. A failure to believe in God's promises. They failed to believe what God was doing. You know, God commanded them to get ready to enter the promised land. And Moses sent out these uh, spies to scout the land. Scouting expedition to look at this land and to prepare to enter it. And these guys went in there, they came back and they reported, yes, indeed, this land is good, just like God said, it flows with milk and honey. There's so much fruit in this land. It's amazing. But the land is filled with all of these giants and all of these nations, and they're going to kill us. We're going to be wiped out. Our children are going to become a prey. And they disobeyed and rebelled against what God called them to do. And therefore, their journey, which should have taken two weeks, took 40 years. And their bodies fell in the desert dust, every single one of them except for two. They hardened their hearts against the Lord. And Hebrews tells us, you and I are in danger of this. The author is telling us, don't be like them. Don't harden your hearts. So let's clarify more about hardening of heart, what it means to harden one's heart, through four questions. First, what does it mean to harden your heart? What does that phrase connote? The author here describes the people's hardness of heart using multiple phrases, multiple ways. Look at verse 8, and again in verse 16, he uses the word rebellion. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Who were those who heard yet rebelled? Verse 9, they put God to the test. God says, your fathers put me to the test. Verse 10, the Lord says, they went astray in their hearts. They did not know God's ways. Verse 17 says, they sinned. As simple as that. Verse 18, they were disobedient. And verse 19 climactically says, They were unable to enter because of unbelief. In verse 12 as well, it says, Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, a heart of unbelief. That's what hardness of heart looks like. You see, unbelief is the root. And then disobedience, rebellion, all of these things are the rotten fruit that spring from that root. The author is calling us to true faith. And note here very clearly, faith, belief, is a matter of the heart. It's not just something you agree with in your mind. It's something that's in your heart and affects the way that you live. As one person says, faith is not simply agreeing with a proposition like saying, oh, I believe that there are giraffes in Africa. You agreed with that. Yeah, it's true. You believe that. But it makes no difference to your heart. It makes no difference to your passions. It makes no difference to the way that you live your life. No, faith, true faith, belief must affect your heart. It must affect how you live. That we would have hearts that are tender, soft, humble, receptive to God's word, obedient to God's word, to what he speaks to us, holding on to God's promises. And so we can simply define hardness of heart as a lack of trust in God's goodness and God's promises that leads 
to disobedience to God's word. Let me repeat that. Hardness of heart is a lack of trust in God's goodness and his promises that leads to disobedience to God's words. So, next question. What are the signs and symptoms of hardness of heart? What are the signs and symptoms of this root of unbelief? Well, if you've read Numbers and if you heard the passage read earlier today, it's very clear and simple. First and foremost, grumbling. Grumbling. These people, in their unbelief, in their hardness of heart, refused to see the amazing things that God had done and God was doing in their midst. And they constantly, constantly grumbled. Oh, we want our fish. Oh, we want to go back to Egypt. And the, the narrative has got changed. Those were not the good old days. They were back in back-breaking slavery and bondage. They said, oh, the meat that we used to eat, those cucumbers, we miss those. And all we have here in this wilderness is the wretched manna. Grumbling, grumbling against God's appointed leader, Moses, constantly wanting to usurp his leadership, questioning him. You know that happens today in the church. We can grow discontent and harden our hearts, close our eyes to all the amazing things that God has done and God is doing, and then begin to grumble. God has placed us here as a congregation in the Middle East, in the heart of the Islamic world, as a gospel witness for 50 years now. For half a century, praise God, what an amazing act of God's grace that his gospel would be preached here for 50 years. God has been with us through the last two years. We've been through a pandemic together. We've been through major transitions and the church has not fallen apart. We're all still here by God's grace. He is present in our midst. God is still saving sinners, bringing people from darkness to light. People are being baptized, having come to saving faith in Christ. In our midst, disciples are being grown. Church planters are being sent out to establish new congregations that will preach the gospel. And how do we respond? Uh, you know that song today was just kind of uh, so sad and so mournful. Why are we singing songs like that in the church? Oh, Pastor Aubrey, you know, yeah, I like his preaching, but man, why does he preach so long? Doesn't he know it's getting late? We get hungry. Doesn't he know we're getting hungry? We have to eat lunch. Oh, these elders, you know, they make decisions. You know, if I was in charge, I would do things completely different. Beware, dear friends, of hardness of heart. It might be coming from unbelief. Don't harden your heart to what God is doing. Another sign or symptom of hardness of heart, testing God. Asking God to prove himself. They constantly tested God. They wanted God to prove that he was in their midst. And we do this. Oh, if God would only do this for me, if he would give me this promotion, if he would work out this issue with my kids, if he would provide in this particular area in my life, then I would fully commit myself to him. Putting God to the test. The other symptom of hardness of heart, straight up disobedience. Rebellion. And it masquerades through fear and other kinds of excuses. God told them to enter this good promised land. 
God said, I will be with you. I will drive out these nations before you. I will bring you in. What do they say? Oh, we're so frightened. These giants, they're going to crush us. Never mind what God did in Egypt, bringing them out of the most powerful nation on earth with mighty signs and wonders, all forgotten now. I'm afraid to do what God tells me to do, and so we're just going to disobey. And we're going to stone those who tell us to do it. This happens today as well. Oh, why does he keep telling us to keep gathering as the church? Doesn't he know about this virus? The virus could kill us. Straight up disobedience. We've been saying for months now. God's word commands us to gather in his presence. And yet this command gets tossed by the wayside. Beware of unbelief. And then the most crucial sign of all is going backwards instead of going forwards. God commanded them onward. Go into the promised land. I am with you. Instead they want to return to Egypt. And this happens for us as well. God has commanded us to keep moving forward in the Christian life. To keep living on mission for him. Instead, what happens? We begin to lapse and return, maybe not to Egypt, but to former patterns and ways of life. We begin to return to a godless life, a life in the world that we all once lived, apart from God and His grace. These are the signs and symptoms of hardening. How does this hardening happen? What is it that causes this hardening? Remember, the author here is not speaking to unbelievers. He's not speaking to non-Christians. The author of Hebrews is speaking to believers. He's speaking to us, and he's warning us against this hardness. He said it can happen to you too. And he tells us how this happens. It's right there in verse 13. He says, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How would you be hardened? By the deceitfulness of sin. We get hardened because sin deceives us. Sin is so deceptive. As a pastor, I've had the heartbreak of seeing again and again how sin deludes and deceives individuals and their heart grows hard and cold and numb to God's word and God's commands. It is insidious. It entices us without showing us the disastrous consequences. Sin will advertise delight and satisfaction and entice you, but then it delivers pain and destruction. It blinds you and numbs you and hardens you to what is going on. It prevents you from seeing the consequences. It only shows you the immediate satisfaction that you would get. You know, the story is told, I've heard of this, of how Eskimos kill wolves in places where it's very cold and freezing, places that I will never ever go in my life. Apparently there are wolves and Eskimos live there and uh, there's this technique that uh, is told about of how they kill the wolves. Uh, the Eskimo will take a, a blade, a very sharp blade, and then coat it with animal blood. After coating it with uh, a layer of animal blood, he will then coat it with ice. And then after coating it with ice, it's frozen on top of the blood, another layer of animal blood, another layer of ice. 
another layer of blood, another layer of ice, multiple layers until what he has is a nice kind of like a popsicle on this blade, a blood popsicle. And then the Eskimo will stick it in the snow with the blade facing up. And uh, the hungry wolf wandering through the uh, Arctic wilderness there in the snow is enticed by the smell of this blood. And he comes to this object in the snow, uh, sticking up delightfully, a nice popsicle, blood-flavored, and the wolf begins to go for it. So he begins to lick the popsicle. And uh, soon the ice gives way to the blood that he is so desiring. And this uh, entices the wolf. He's getting excited, exhilarated by the taste of blood. So he keeps going and he keeps lapping. He keeps lapping this popsicle. The ice gives way, more blood. And the ice is numbing his tongue as he keeps lapping the blood. His tongue grows more and more numb, but he begins to grow more and more excited. And he keeps going. And then very soon, what the wolf doesn't realize is that the blade is exposed and the edge of the blade is making lacerations on his tongue and his tongue is beginning to be cut open and the blood that he's tasting in his mouth is his own blood and the warm blood that is now in his mouth begins to excite him more and more and he keeps on going but his tongue has grown numb to the pain you see he doesn't feel the pain because of the ice and soon his blood is dripping on the floor and later, the Eskimo finds a dead wolf. Sin deceives us, numbs us, entices us, draws us in, keeps us going on and on in numbness and hardness until your own blood is poured out on the ground and you do not even realize what has happened. So I want to ask you, where is sin deceiving you? Where is sin blinding you and numbing you to the consequences? Maybe you've been lulled into some kind of a worldliness, just living in the world, just carrying on in your life with no reference to God or Christ, having forgotten the Lord and His goodness, living far from Him, not bothering to gather with His people, not bothering to live in community and relationship with one another. Maybe it's old habits that have crept back in, that have drawn you in. Maybe Egypt has uh, reached out and found its way into your heart again. An old relationship that was brought to an end has now come back. Certain habits of lying or sexual sin or pornography. Some kind of falsehood that you're giving yourself to. Or maybe trials have tested you and you've come to a place where you just don't want to carry on in the Christian life. And go back to the world. When life is hard, sin is inviting. You know, life is very hard for a wolf roaming the Arctic wilderness and a blade sticking up from the ground can look very inviting. Friends, sin deceives it hides its consequences until it is too late. And it hardens you and deceives you so that you don't even know what is happening. Which leads to our fourth question. What are those consequences? What are the consequences of unbelief and a hardness of heart? 
Oh, the consequences are so severe. Look at verses 10 to 12. This is the Lord speaking. He says, Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It's right there in verse 12. Our unbelief, our hardness of heart leads us to fall away, to fall away from the living God. And on God's side, it provokes him to wrath. It brings out his righteous rage and fury against sin. You only need to read the book of Numbers to see all the acts of judgment and the severe wrath that God brought upon the people. The earth opened up and swallowed entire families and their tents alive. Plagues. God sent plagues among the people and these plagues went through the population, destroying people and bringing their bodies down to the dust. God sent fires that consumed portions of the camp and people were roasted in these fires and died. Not just fires, but fiery serpents. The people grumbled against God and he sent fiery snakes that bit them and they died. Now I heard one Bible teacher saying in some churches today, if God were to do the same thing and you showed up on a Sunday morning, what would you find? You'd find a hall filled with dead bodies and live snakes. And then finally, they experienced God's righteous rage for 40 years. Their bodies falling in the wilderness, every single one of them except two. God swore that he would bring wrath upon them. Verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And that sentence, they shall not enter my rest, in the original language, it's an oath formula. It reads, if they shall enter my rest. With the implication being, if they enter my rest, if they enter the promised land, then I am not God. God puts his own existence and his status as God Almighty on the line in an oath that he is going to destroy these people for their sin. Imagine that. The infinite, almighty, omnipotent God, the creator of heaven and earth, swears against you, swears and puts his own existence on the line saying that he is going to make an end of you because of sin. And against these people that they would never enter his rest. And make no mistake, dear friends, it would be no different for us. That if you continue in disobedience, if we continue in unbelief and hardness of heart, it will lead to a falling away and you will soon find yourself facing the wrath of this almighty God. And you might hear that and say, oh, Pastor Aubrey, are we not under grace? Well, they were under grace. God delivered them from Egypt by his grace. And we have experienced a far greater grace than them. They were delivered from slavery in, in a human nation by a human deliverer. We have been delivered from Satan, sin, and death by a deliverer who is the Son of God himself, who died on the cross, who rose from the dead. We have experienced something far, far greater than the deliverance from Egypt. And so the consequences for neglecting this salvation are greater. 
the consequences for abandoning Christ will be far greater. So how can we avoid this deadly predicament? How does God in His grace prevent us from hardening our hearts in unbelief? That leads to our second major warning today. I told you the first warning is do not harden your hearts. Warning number two in the center of the sandwich, guard one another's hearts. Guard one another's hearts, verses 12 to 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You know, all of us have grown quite familiar over the last two years with how vaccines work. How do vaccines work? They prevent you. They're preventative in nature. They prevent you from catching the disease. At least that's their intention. Not always 100% uh, fail-safe. <laughs> but it, the, the intention is to prevent something from happening. And God, in His grace, has given us a vaccine against hardening of heart, a vaccine against unbelief. And let me assure you, this vaccine has been tested, it's been proven, and it's far more effective than even the Pfizer vaccine. What is the vaccine against hardening of heart and falling away? It's called the church. It's called the local church. One another. We prevent one another from falling away. Look at what he says there in verse 12. He says, take care. Take care, brothers. The phrase take care is literally watch out. It has the sense of guarding. Guard. Be on guard, brothers. And he says, brothers. That means brothers and sisters. That means members of the church. This is a community project. This is a family endeavor. Guard together, he says. You know, one pastor uh, asked the question, is it possible to live the Christian life without church membership? Without active, not just having your name on the list, but active, meaningful involvement in relationships, committed relationships in the local church. Is it possible to live the Christian life without that? He says, well, that question is kind of like asking another question. Is it possible to drive on the highway at night without headlights? I mean, ever think about that? It's possible. You can drive on Sheikh Zayed Road at 140 kilometers an hour with your headlights off. Very possible. Also very dangerous, even maybe foolish. And so it is possible to be a Christian, to live the Christian life apart from the local church. But it is so dangerous. And it is foolish. Because we need one another. And you know, sometimes we might get into this habit of saying, oh, I'm so down, I'm struggling so much, I just don't think I can go to church. But one person says, rightly, that's like saying, oh, my car is running out of gas, I just don't think I can go to the petrol station. Friends, we must guard one another. Look at verse 13. Exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today that no one might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We are all prone to this. 
Every single one of us, we are all prone to being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We are all prone to wander and we feel it. We are all prone to hardening our hearts and falling away and not finishing the race. We need one another. We cannot be like Cain saying, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is, yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. You are responsible. We are responsible to make sure that each one, every one of us, finishes the race. I need this. I need you to exhort me with the word of God to remind me of God's goodness, to remind me of God's promises, to tell me, Pastor Aubrey, press on. My heart can be deceived. Every week we hear of another report of a pastor who started well and finished poorly and brought down his ministry and his family and his church through some form of sin. Brothers and sisters, pastors need this. We need your encouragement. We need you to speak to us and remind us of what God is doing and remind us of God's goodness and his promises. How often should we be speaking to one another in these ways? The author says, every day. Every day as long as it is called today. There is no such thing as just another day in the Christian life. Until the second coming of Christ. No such day, thing as a routine day without any significance for you and me. No, we must make the most of every day to constantly be fixing our eyes on those whom we are living in relationships with in the body of Christ and exhorting one another so that we will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and face God's judgment. This means, dear brothers and sisters, hear these words. This means that you are responsible not just for your own salvation, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but that God holds you responsible for the salvation of others in the family of God. For the salvation of other members in the local church. You are responsible. That God holds you to account for them. You must exhort them so that they will make it to the end. And if they fall away and you did not do anything to pray for them, to pursue them, to care for them, to call them back, to seek them out, if they fall away and you did not warn them or even give them a passing thought, then friends, their blood will be on your head before the judgment seat of God. Be mindful of this and hear these words. We must exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. This is not just the pastor's job. This is not just the job of the elders. This is the job of the members. It's your job to look at the members directory and say, I'm going to exhort these persons so that no one will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pursue them. So the question, how do we do that? How do we exhort one another and make sure that we all finish the race? Well, very simply, it starts with prioritizing the gatherings of the local church. Not as a passive consumer, but as an active, involved, engaged contributor. Right? You, you look at Hebrews chapter 10 and the author says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Encourage one another to love and good works. Same idea, exhorting one another. 
And then he says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. The, the word they used is not neglecting to assemble together. He's speaking of the gatherings of the congregation. Don't neglect this. Prioritize this and come to this gathering, again, not being passive, but thinking about how can I encourage others today? How can I exhort others today? God's word of exhortation doesn't end with the sermon in the pulpit. In fact, the preached word is where it begins. Right? The word being preached is like a glacier at the top of the mountains that gives fresh water coming down, and then your hearts and your lives, dear brothers and sisters, are the channels and the conduits that makes that water available to others. So you hear God's word being preached, and then you meet others and you ask questions and seek to help one another. How was God speaking to you? What were you convicted of in the sermon today? Ask questions like, how is God growing you spiritually? Spend a few minutes after church or go to lunch with somebody. Invite someone to your home. Ask them where they're growing spiritually. Ask them where they're struggling. Seek to do them good. And then we create a culture of meaningful membership in the church. Meaningful membership. Membership that's not just names on the list, but membership which involves caring for one another in commitment. So I want to ask you, when was the last time that you prayed for other members of the church and let them know? Or do you just pray for your own needs? When was the last time you shared biblical truth with another church member in order to encourage them and exhort them? When was the last time you called someone to check how they're doing spiritually? Have you taken the time after service to introduce yourself to someone whom maybe you haven't met before with the aim of building a relationship in order to do them some spiritual good? Do you live in vulnerability and vulnerable relationships with other Christians where your heart and your life is open and transparent, where they can exhort you and you can exhort them? Have we even taken the time to know others in the church? That you would know other Christians in this church enough and your life would be mingled among them enough that you can do this, that you can exhort them? Are you loving enough? Do you love others enough to be willing to confront them when you find them caught in sin with the goal of bringing them back to the Lord Jesus? Friends, that's how we avoid the hardening effects of the deceitfulness of sin. We make these commitments in our membership covenant, you know, that we will walk together in brotherly love and care for one another, and pray for one another, that we will press on together toward maturity in Christ, in holiness and godliness together. That's our vaccine against the deadly disease of sin. That's how we hold our confidence firm until the end, by exhorting one another every day, as long as it is called today. The Christian life is like a marathon. And you know, we're running this race and we grow depleted and weak. And in the midst of that weakness, in a marathon, marathon runners have others encouraging them on, saying, keep going, keep going, press on, keep on, just a little longer. Keep going, dear brother, keep going, dear sister. We need one another, we need to say these words. Keep going, Michelle. Keep going, dear brother Anwar. Hold on, Jesus is faithful, Nahum. Jesus is faithful, brother Jun. 
Keep on in the Christian life. We will make it to the end. God is faithful to strengthen you and carry you. Keep believing his promises. Don't stop believing. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so once again, we see this paradox in Hebrews of these two truths that go together. Number one, all true believers need constant exhortation, need to be warned, and must persevere to the end if we are to be saved. And yet, on the other hand, Jesus will preserve those who belong to him, and he will keep us safe to the end. Our salvation is secure in him. Yes, we are warned not to be like old covenant Israel. We are in danger of following their example of disobedience. But friends, Jesus also died. The Son of God died so that our community would be different. He died and inaugurated a new covenant where all of us have the Holy Spirit, where all of us have new hearts so that we would be fundamentally different from those people, that we would be people with hearts that desire God, with hearts that long to live in obedience to Him, with hearts that desire Christ, a people who will persevere in faith, that we would not be a people marked by rebellion and who face judgment, but a community who will be firm to the end because we are held by him to the end. Now I told you our Christian life is like a journey in the wilderness. And you might be reminded that there was one who also walked through the wilderness. That God the Son himself took on human flesh and came down fully like us yet without sin, fully God and fully man. And he went into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And he was tested in that wilderness. And in every test, Jesus overcame. Jesus overcame and he was without sin. All of his life, in every test, Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. And he went into the deepest dark wilderness. The wilderness of the wrath of God on the cross. As he faced God's judgment and wrath. Not for his own sin but for the sins of his people, for our unbelief, for our hardness of heart, the Son of God was crucified so that we repent and believe in him and he saves us not just once, but by his grace, the risen reigning Son of God gives us everything that we need to hold firm to the end. So I don't know where you are in your journey this morning, Maybe you've been hardening your heart. Maybe you've been trapped in some kind of sin. Or maybe the deceit of unbelief has made its way into your soul. Maybe you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus. You've lived your whole life with a hardened heart. You've never heard his voice and all of life has been darkness for you. Whatever the case, I want to say to you, Dear friend, today, hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for so great a salvation and so great a Savior. May we never harden our hearts against 
our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Work in us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.